The House and Senate will come back today and stay in session through Thursday. Last week in the House, the House came back to work on Tuesday and took up and passed two bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House took up and passed three bills under suspension. On Thursday and Friday, the House considered H.R. 21, the Strategic Production Response Act. That would require the Biden administration to stop its abuse of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and to develop a plan to increase oil and gas production on federal lands that would offset any additional future drawdowns. The bill was considered under a modified open rule, which allowed any member of the House to offer an amendment to the legislation on the floor of the House. Over the course of the two days, the House considered no fewer than 78 amendments. Then the House considered the bill as amended, and it passed by a vote of 221 to 205. This week in the House, the House will come back Monday with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to take up five bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House is scheduled to consider H.R. 497, the Freedom for Healthcare Workers Act, which would end the Biden vaccine mandate on healthcare workers whose services are billed through federal programs, which is just about all of them. The House will also vote on H.R. 382, the Pandemic is Over Act, which would end the public health emergency declared on January 31, 2020. On Wednesday, and for the balance of the week, the House will take up H.R. 139, the Stopping Home Office Works Unproductive Problems Act, also known as the Show Up Act of 2023. That would address the problem faced by the District of Columbia caused by so many federal bureaucrats working from home. That leaves downtown D.C. office space empty and causes real damage to the local economy. The solution? Reinstate pre-pandemic telework policies and mandate a study of the productivity and cost to taxpayers of the federal government's exceedingly lax work-from-home policies. Then they'll take up H.J. Res. 7 to declare terminated the national state of emergency for COVID declared by the president on March 13, 2020. And finally, H. Con. Res. 9, denouncing the horrors of socialism. As always, additional legislative items are possible. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Monday and voted to confirm Brendan Owens to be an assistant secretary of defense. On Thursday, the Senate voted unanimously to pass S-Res 13, a resolution raising awareness and encouraging the prevention of stalking by designating January 2023 as National Stalking Awareness Month. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, we anticipate that the Senate will come back into session on Monday, today, with the first vote scheduled for 5.30 p.m., because that is the usual Senate schedule. But as of the time of this writing, an hour ago, we don't know what they'll be voting on. Now to booting Democrats from committee assignments. Last Tuesday, Speaker McCarthy announced his decision to block Democrats Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell from serving on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. House Democrat leader Hakeem Jeffries had announced his intention to appoint the two to the Intelligence Committee just a few days earlier. McCarthy, as Speaker, has the power to block anyone from sitting on the Intelligence Committee. Though many critics saw McCarthy's move as payback for former Speaker Nancy Pelosi's decision in the last Congress to remove Republicans Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene from their committee assignments, McCarthy insisted it had nothing to do with payback. 
Instead, said McCarthy, it was a matter of national security. Schiff had regularly not been truthful during his four years as chairman of the Intelligence Committee from 2019 to 2023, and Swalwell had been honey-trapped by a female Chinese intelligence operative. The Democrats will scream bloody murder, but McCarthy's decision is final. Meanwhile, McCarthy is still considering moving a resolution to the floor that would remove Democrat Ilhan Omar from the Committee on Foreign Affairs. McCarthy cannot do that by himself. He would need a majority of the House to vote to remove Omar from the committee, and that's not a certain thing. Remember, McCarthy can only afford to lose four votes in a floor vote. That is, four votes from Republicans in a floor vote. And as of this writing, he's right on the cusp. Florida Republican Greg Stubbe is still recovering from a fall off a ladder, and so will miss votes for some time. And three Republicans have stated publicly that they oppose removing Omar from the committee. If there's one more Republican out there who votes against removing Omar, that would cause the vote to fail. And Speaker McCarthy does not want to fail on any votes for the next two years, so he's counting heads. Now to a Biden judicial nominee. Last Wednesday, the Senate Judiciary Committee held confirmation hearings for several Biden judicial nominees. One of them, a woman by the name of Charnel Bielkengren, nominated to serve as a U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of Washington, stood out. Republican Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana asked her a simple question. Tell me what Article 5 of the Constitution does. Article 5 is not coming to me at the moment, she replied. So Kennedy tossed her even more of a softball. How about Article 2? She replied that Article 2 also escaped her at the moment. Article 5 of the Constitution is 143 words long. It lays out the process by which the Constitution can be amended. Article 2, of course, establishes the powers and authorities of the executive branch. Kennedy told NBC News after the hearing, Some of these nominees that have been forced in the last two years have no business being anywhere near a federal bench. They don't have any business being anywhere near a park bench that a nominee to serve as a federal judge should not know these fundamental facts about the Constitution of the United States would be shocking if it were coming from any administration other than Joe Biden's. We'll come back to Charnel Bielkengren shortly. Now to illegal immigration. We're not even a month into the 118th Congress, and the temperature is already rising in the conflict between the House Republican majority and the Biden administration. As mentioned a few weeks ago, new House Oversight and Accountability Committee Chairman James Comer scheduled a hearing to be held on February 6 on the subject of the crisis on the southern border. He invited our Border Patrol chiefs, that is four Border Patrol chiefs, to testify before his committee at that hearing because he wanted to hear directly from the frontline chiefs. Well, the Department of Homeland Security apparently didn't like that idea. So last Wednesday, the Acting Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs sent a letter to Chairman Comer saying that the department was blocking the four invited witnesses from testifying. Chairman Comer was not pleased and responded the following day in a letter to DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. That letter sent Thursday, Comer challenged the premise of DHS's position on the matter. Quote, taken to its logical conclusion, he wrote, the arguments advanced by DHS would render most federal officials in the executive branch completely immune from providing essential information to Congress, end quote. 
Comer reiterated his request for the four Border Patrol chiefs to be made available to identify at a hearing rescheduled for February 7, and asked Mayorkas to confirm by close of business Tuesday, that is tomorrow. Comer even included a threat, quote, if you continue to direct DHS to obstruct congressional oversight in this matter, I will be forced to consider the use of the compulsory process, end quote. That's a euphemism for subpoena. Now to the fair tax. Apparently, as part of the deal to secure the votes necessary to become Speaker, Kevin McCarthy agreed to allow consideration of the fair tax, a bill that would eliminate the IRS and repeal the income tax, while substituting in its place a 30% national sales tax. This is a nutty idea for several reasons. To begin with, you cannot repeal the income tax. I'll say it again. You cannot repeal the income tax. Oh, it's legally possible to repeal it, but it's not politically possible to repeal it. You see, in order to repeal the income tax and make sure it was dead, 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 you'd have to do two things. First, repeal it in statute, and then repeal the 16th Amendment to the Constitution to make sure it never comes back to life. To repeal an amendment to the Constitution requires another amendment to the Constitution, as, for instance, the 21st Amendment repeals the 18th Amendment. That means you'd have to get two-thirds of both houses of Congress to pass it, or you'd have to get two-thirds of the states to pass it. And then you'd have to ratify it, with 38 states necessary to ratify it. That means just 14 states can block the ratification of an amendment to repeal the income tax. California, New York, New Jersey, Illinois, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Hawaii, Maryland, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Oregon, Washington, Minnesota, New Mexico, and Vermont would all fail to ratify such an amendment. And that's just off the top of my head. So you'd never repeal the 16th Amendment, and the income tax would remain in place. That would mean you'd have a national sales tax on top of the national income tax. That's essentially what they have in Europe. And it explains why economic growth in Europe is so sluggish compared to economic growth in the United States. But just for the sake of argument, let's say you succeeded in repealing the income tax, and now you've switched to a national sales tax that adds 30% to the cost of everything you buy. That is a political killer for the party that makes that change. You know why? Stop and think for a moment about who that hurts. It hurts people who have low income but live off savings like seniors. All their life, they did what their smart financial advisors advised them to do. They paid their taxes on their income, and they set aside some of it for their retirement in tax-advantaged accounts that were designed to offer them incentives to save instead of spend. And now we're going to change the tax system, and instead of taxing them on their income, which is low, we're going to add 30% to the cost of everything they have to buy? Ouch. Seniors vote at higher rates than do younger people. Moreover, this fair tax is dishonest. Proponents of the tax will tell you it's only a 23% tax. Why? Because they did survey research and found out there's a tipping point somewhere in the mid-20s. It turns out that when you ask people if they'll accept a 30% sales tax in order to get rid of the income tax, they say that's too high and they'd rather stick with the income tax. But if you drop that number to 20%, they're happy to make the change. Same for 23%. They'll accept a 23% sales tax in order to get rid of the income tax. All good, right? Wrong. Because if I ask you to tell me what's the tax rate 
if I add 30 cents to every dollar you spend, you'll tell me it's what? 30%, right? Of course it is. Add 30 cents to a $1 purchase and you've just levied a 30% sales tax. And that's what they're talking about. So how do they claim it's only a 23% tax? Because if you take 30 cents, the tax, and divide it by $1.30, the total price, you get 23%. That is, the 30 cent tax represents 23% of the total cost of the item after you add the tax to it. But that's not the way we talk about taxes. It's dishonest. They shouldn't call this thing the fair tax. They should call it the George Santos tax. Anyway, it came up for discussion last week, and it became clear it was going to be trouble. Speaker McCarthy reminded everyone that he also supported the 20 original opponents' desire to return to regular order, which includes bills going through committee. So the fair tax will get its shot in the Ways and Means Committee, which is where tax bills originate and where bad tax bills go to die. Now, more on gas stoves. The Washington Times had a very interesting follow-up piece last week. On Thursday, reporter Susan Ferecchio published a piece looking back at a July 2019 meeting that brought together left-wing billionaire-funded think tanks like the Rocky Mountain Institute, the Georgetown Climate Center, and the Energy Foundation to meet with state officials from all over the country. The meeting was hosted by the Rockefeller Brothers Fund at the Rockefeller Family Mansion in Pocantico, New York. The meeting agenda included net zero buildings and carbon pricing strategies, including a carbon tax. You'll find a link to the piece in this week's suggested reading. Now to the debt ceiling. House Republicans are considering a short-term suspension of the debt limit to buy time for further negotiations on spending. They're thinking about lining up the suspension of the debt limit with the end of the fiscal year on September 30, so the two deadlines can be combined into one giant fiscal cliff. Note, I said they were considering a move to suspend the debt limit, not to actually raise the debt limit. This is for two reasons. First, Suspending the debt limit until a date certain gives you an exact date, which is better for setting deadlines than raising the debt limit, which means Treasury runs out of smoke and mirrors on an exact date. Second, and I think this is the less important of the two reasons, Republicans promised not to vote to raise the debt limit without first getting an agreement on spending reductions. But they didn't promise not to vote to suspend the debt limit. I think this is hooey, made up by the mainstream media to make Republicans look bad. But you should know it's out there. Any such short-term maneuver would be a clean suspension without any other attachments. On a related front, Speaker McCarthy announced on Sunday's Meet the Press that he would be meeting with President Biden on Wednesday. Now, more on the Biden document situation. Democrats and Republicans on the Senate Intelligence Committee have been trying for months to get the Office of the Director of National Intelligence to tell them what was in the documents found at Mar-a-Lago. Now they've added a new request. They want to know what's in the documents found in President Biden's old think tank office and in his garage next to his Corvette and in his house. The intelligence community so far has told the Senate Intelligence Committee to go pound sand. And now that special counsels have been, invoid, have been appointed to investigate both President Trump and President Biden, the intelligence community is hiding behind those appointments to avoid answering questions. Round one goes to the intelligence community. 
But the members of the Senate Intelligence Committee are more determined than ever now. They're already talking about various ways they can bring pressure on the intelligence community, including by blocking funding in the appropriations process. And Senator Tom Cotton, Republican of Arkansas and a member of the Intelligence Committee, has announced he will put a hold on all Biden administration nominees on his, until his demands for information are satisfied. So round two may go to the Intelligence Committee. We'll see. Now to 2024 action. As expected and as predicted, Republican National Committee Chairman Ronna McDaniel was reelected to a very rare fourth term, demolishing her two challengers on a first ballot victory with 111 votes to 51 for her main challenger, California Republican National Committee woman Harmeet Dillon, and four votes for MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell. Former New York Republican Congressman Lee Zeldin received one vote as a write-in candidate. More on the talented Mr. Santos. The reporting on the curious background of Congressman George Santos, a Republican from New York, has not stopped. I have not included much of it in our weekly reports since I first made you aware of his curious background because I didn't know where the story was going. It didn't seem likely the House would vote to expel him. That's a very rare occurrence, as it's only happened five times in the last two centuries. And three of those were for Southerners who were expelled after the start of the war between the states. But now the pressure has stepped up. The Justice Department last week asked the Federal Election Commission to back off, as DOJ was investigating Santos and didn't want the FEC to mess things up. Any FEC enforcement action against Santos might interfere with a potential criminal investigation of Santos, and that's the more serious problem for him. The questions seem to center on the funding of his campaign. According to his FEC filings, he made three large loans to the campaign, $80,000 in 2021, then a loan for $500,000 in the summer of 2022, followed by another loan for $125,000 in the fall of 2022, adding up to $705,000. But in new amended filings, he unchecked the boxes indicating the loans had come from personal funds. Then he filed paperwork changing treasurers. But the person listed as his new treasurer had a lawyer explain to the media that he was not, in fact, the new treasurer, and those papers shouldn't have been filed indicating that he was. The FEC quickly asked the Santos campaign for clarification. We're still waiting to see how that plays out. Meanwhile, the Securities and Exchange Commission interviewed two people last Friday about the congressman's role in Harbor City Capital an investment firm Santos once worked for that was shut down after the SEC accused it of running what it called a classic Ponzi scheme. These two people had been quoted in a Washington Post piece that ran Wednesday describing how Santos had solicited investments from them for Harbor City Capital. Stay tuned. And that's our Washington report for this week.